Can you ladies hear me? Yes. All right. Uh, I love that video. I think it's like the perfect example of kind of what we have been talking about, of basically being Jesus with skin on. And that really highlights what First John is all about. Because John is writing to us to promote holiness through fellowship. And we do that um, when we're showing Christ through action. And that's what First John is all about. And that's what we've been talking about. So what I want to do tonight is start with a recap of what we have learned in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then we're going to jump in to 1st John 4. So I'm going to need your help. We're going to use our Bibles. So open them up. Go ahead and turn to 1st John 1, and I'm going to need you guys to help me fill this out. All right. 1st John chapter 1. Are we there? You got your phones? Okay. Awesome. So John, or as he writes 1 John, he gives us pretty much some criteria about what it means to be a Christ follower. And in the process, he also tells us what it means not to be a Christ follower. So we learn a little bit of both. And so what I want to do is fill this out. And if you, are, if you can read this, I know I was struggling for a little bit. This says, non-Christ follower, Christ follower, and then here we are, 1 John 1. So we're going to start here. So I need you to help me. In 1 John chapter 1, John is telling us what it means to be a Christ follower, one of the characteristics. So, um, shout out your answers, and I'll give you a hint. Start with 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? Yes, okay, we confess. All right, awesome. So, we confess. Confess our sins. And then it kind of continues there, and it says we're cleansed. Now, check out First uh, John 1, 7. What does it say? Fellowship. Fellowship. Fellowship, and they walk in the light. All right. So, our Christ followers, characteristics, they confess. They have fellowship. They walk in the light. Now, on the contrast, let's just do a quick review of the not Christ followers. So, First John 1, 8, what does that tell us? We are not a Christ follower if, okay, we claim we haven't sinned. We ignore or we deny that we have sinned. Ignore, deny, sin. Maybe we don't see the need. Maybe it's like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm good. I don't see the problem. So we don't see the need for a Savior. So we ignore or we deny our sin. And then 1 John 1, 6, in contrast to walking in the light, says, I think I heard it, darkness, right, okay. So 1 John chapter 1 gives us some ideas about non-Christ followers and Christ followers. So let's go on to 1 John chapter 2. Flip over there with me. And let's start with the, uh, the person who is not a Christ follower. 1 John 2, verse 4 says what? What is a characteristic of someone who is not a Christ follower? They're a liar, okay? They say, I know him, but... Yes, they don't obey. Okay, so they're a liar because they say, I know but no obedience. All right. So let's go ahead and flip to the other side. A Christ follower. 
First John chapter two, chapter two, verse five. What does it say? How do we know a characteristic of a Christ follower? They obey. Okay, they obey God's commandments. Awesome. All right. So it tells us that they obey commandments, but First John chapter two gives us like a bonus. It says a Christ follower obeys. God's commandments, and then it highlights a commandment. So anybody want to take a guess at what the highlighted commandment in chapter 2 is? Yes, love. Love one another. So it's our bonus. And so it says, obey commands, and now I'm highlighting this one. So do obey all the commands, but especially this one right here. So we've got an idea. A true Christ follower. They confess their sins. They live in fellowship. They walk in the light. They obey God's commands, especially the love one another command. Now let's go to 1 John 3. So 1 John 3 gives a characteristic of a non-Christ follower. I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 4. What does it say? Breaks the law. Practices sin. All right. They practice sin. In the contrast of that, let's look at um, verse 7. What does it say? The Christ follower. Yes, yes, they practice righteousness. Great. I apologize for my handwriting. All right, so they practice righteousness, but bonus John 3, or 1 John 3, gives us another highlighted command. Anybody want to guess what that is? Look at 18. Love, yes. So ding, ding, ding. Again, love one another. So, 1 John gives us ideas, non-Christ followers and Christ followers, and it gives us this highlighted command repeatedly, love one another, love one another. So if we're a Christ follower or a child of God, we confess our sins and we're cleansed. We begin to follow him, we obey his commands, and we practice righteousness. And all of this is like coated, I think of like an M&M, coated, candy-coated in love. And so tonight we're going to be reading through 1 John 4, and we're going to find out why. Why does John keep talking about this idea of love over and over and over again? So before we get there, I want to pray, and I just want to ask God to come and be a part and speak um, his truth tonight. So, so Father, uh, we come to you, and I, I ask God that you do the speaking tonight that everything that needs to be said would be said, and everything else that is not of you would just be uh, washed away, not remembered. God, help me to represent you well tonight, to speak of your character rightly, to discern your word correctly, God. And I ask that you open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would um, give us like a supernatural ability to understand what you have for us in this. Because it's no accident that you have us here. So speak. We want to listen. And we want to follow. And we want you to be glorified. 
And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, 1 John brings up a lot of questions for me. When I'm first studying a passage of scripture, typically what I do is walk through it and ask like, well, that's weird. Why is that? Um, and, and I try to find all the discrepancies and figure out like what, like why are they saying this? Because it's so counterintuitive to what seems logical sometimes. You know, sometimes when it says like, do not repay evil for evil, but I'm like, I want to repay evil for evil. And I have to ask myself why that's there. Sometimes things just, I ask questions. And so First John 4 especially brings out a lot of questions for me because I feel like John is kind of jumping all over the place. Um, in the beginning, he's talking about like testing spirits, and then he moves on to the command of love, and then he's talking about fear and love and punishment. And I'm like, how does all of this fit together? It just seems a little bit crazy. And so what I want to do is break this down into sections, and as we break it down, we'll see how they all fit together, all right? So we're going to start with section one, and that's going to be verses one through six. I think it's, yep, it's there on the screen. I'm going to read it for you. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So this is the first section, and John is talking about spirits. And I think it's easy for that to sound very mystical or kind of spooky, like, oh, he's talking about spirits. Um, But if you remember when we are reading the Bible, sometimes in order to understand the context, we have to look before the passage that we're looking at. We have to look a few verses before or a few verses after. So what I want to do is look at the verse right before, which is in uh, verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 24. It says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So if we're a Christ follower, John is letting us know that God's spirit lives in us, okay? So he's already on this topic of spirits. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. So we contrast that with the very next thing where John says, we have the Holy Spirit, but don't believe every spirit, but test to see whether or not they are from God. And he kind of gives us a reason for this, or he gives us a a way to test. And he says, um, that we will know if the Holy Spirit is living if, in someone, if, they, if they're a child of God, um, if they confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. And that, like, as soon as I read that, I'm like, okay, that doesn't quite make sense. Because in our world today, there's not many people that would dispute the fact that Jesus was a real man. I have a lot of friends that would say, well, Jesus is a great guy. I mean, he was a good prophet. He was a good teacher. There's not a lot of people who would say he never existed. We have a lot of historical 
evidence that says Jesus was here on this earth. He was a man. And so why is John saying we have to, uh, uh, someone who is from God will confess that Jesus was in the flesh? Because we know a lot of people who are not Christ followers who will say, yeah, Jesus was a real man. He came in the flesh. The reason is because John, um, in his time, there was a group of people who were influencing the church, and they believed that Jesus was God, but they didn't believe that God would ever associate with sinners, and so they believed that Jesus was only like a spirit or an apparition, that he never came down, that he was not fully man. So whereas, like these days, we believe that Jesus, well, not we, but a lot of people in this world believe that Jesus was fully man and not God, they believed he was fully God and not man. And so what John is actually saying here isn't, well, like, if you believe that he's in the flesh, then you're a Christ follower. That's a characteristic. What he's saying is we know somebody, we know if they're a Christ follower by what they say about Jesus. Is what they say true? Is it the whole truth? That's what we're getting at. The whole truth about Jesus. If we're a Christ follower, we confess the whole truth about Jesus. And so that's something that we can add here. So, if we're a Christ follower, we confess the whole truth. Okay? Likewise, we have another thing that we can add here. A lot of people in that day were giving a partial truth. They're saying he's fully God, but not fully man. And John calls them false prophets. So they confess a partial truth or not the whole truth. So, not the whole truth. So these are some other characteristics of Christ followers and non-Christ followers. And in our world today, we have a lot of people who are giving us partial truths about Scripture. There's a lot of, of people, and it's easy to do this, to only speak about the good parts of Scripture we don't talk about the hard stuff. You know, it's really easy to name and claim and say, yes, God wants to bless you and he's gonna give you a million dollars. Yes, God does want to bless you, but it may not be in that prosperous way that you're imagining. It may be through a whole, a whole host of trials where he shows you more of himself. It is not easy to preach the entire thing when we just wanna hear the good stuff. Um, but it's easy to listen to sometimes. And so John continues, and he says, you are from God, and you have overcome them. So Christ followers, we are from God, and we have overcome them. That's the other spirits. For he, the Holy Spirit, who is in you, is greater than he, the other spirit, the Antichrist, who is in the world. And so those other spirits may preach good things and it may be enticing because if they're a little bit more lax on that sin issue that you have, then you might want to be drawn to them. You might want to walk over there because there's a little bit more grace there, right? But if it's not the whole truth, then it's not the truth. And so it says we have overcome them. And when I think of the word overcome, like it pops up this idea of um, like defeating and death, and, and it's really not that. Uh, the Greek word is nikeo, and it is used in the Bible to mean 
to hold fast to faith, even unto death, against the power of foes, of persecutions, and of temptations, to maintain one's cause. So what we're talking about there is not this absolute, like, we're going to demolish them. But what we're saying is, I'm going to stand firm, and I'm not going to waver. And I have the power to stand firm, even against that temptation that entices me over to this gospel that only gives me a portion of truth. So, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we are able to hold fast to what is true against any temptation that draws us away from Christ. So, section one, again, it focuses on discerning who is a Christ follower and who is not a Christ follower. Section two is going to begin with a similar highlighted commandment, like from chapters two and three, our highlighted commandment, love one another, and we love one another. I just realized I left out love right there. We love one another. So we love one another and we love one another. It goes to a similar highlighted commandment, and it provides us with another standard to know the difference between Christ followers and non-Christ followers. And it brings up a lot of questions. So what I want to do is take some time. We have a good chunk of time right now, and we're going to dissect this portion of Scripture at the table. And it's verses 7 through 15. So get out your Bibles, and here's the questions that we're going to try to answer. What is the difference between Christ followers and non-Christ followers found in that section, 7 through 15? What is the highlighted command of 1 John 4? And then there's a couple interesting questions. It says, what does it mean that anyone who does not love does not know God? The last one is, why does the book of John focus on love? So let's dissect the scripture, see if you can answer these questions. And anything else that comes up, feel free to talk about it at your table. Let scripture help bring things alive for you. And then we're going to come back in about 25 minutes. All right, let's go. All right, how'd we do? All good? Oh, I love the responses. Okay, good. All right, so I need your help. Let's go through a couple of the answers. So what did we learn? What did this passage highlight about a Christ follower? What's a characteristic? They love. They love. Okay, what else? Yes, the Holy Spirit is in them. All right. What about a non-Christ follower? What's the characteristic that we learn from here? They don't love. All right. Can't, do not love. All right. What is the highlighted command? Yes, love one another. Okay, I think you guys have the pattern now. So love one another. Just trust me that that's what it says. All right, love one another. It's down there. So love one another, love one another, love one another. So that's the highlighted command all through 1 John um, 1, chapter 1, all the way through 4. So there's a couple of questions on there that are a little bit harder to answer though, right? Um, I think for me, the question that comes out is like, why is it that a non-Christ follower 
can't love or doesn't know how to love. Because don't we all know people who are not Christ followers who are super loving? Like really good people, salt of the earth people who love really well. So how does this match up with scripture? Because scripture clearly tells us that they cannot love. And so um, I'd love any suggestions, any answers, thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Tracking with you. Okay. So yes, God in us. Yes. Awesome. And that's exactly where we're headed. So in the Greek, which is what the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in. So I go back to the Greek a lot because I'm a nerd and I love going back to the original meaning. So in the Greek, there are several words that are used for love, and they have several different words, whereas in the English language, we have one word. And, but our one word means very different things. Like, for example, I mean, I just love chicken salad. Like, and I do. It's my favorite food. I can eat it right now. I love chicken salad, okay? Or like, oh, I love her. She's so sweet. Very different, right? Or when I say, like, I love you to a family member or to my husband, like, it's it's a different type of love. I love him much differently than I love chicken salad, right? Let's hope. <laughs> um, so, and I, I love my mother much differently than I love one of my friends. It's a different type of love. Now, in the Greek, they had three or four different ways, or different ways to say love. And so, one of the words was the word phileo, and phileo, several of you, you've probably heard this before, but it's worth repeating. So phileo, it means friendship or brotherly love. And an easy way to remember this is the city of Philadelphia. Why? Because their slogan is? Yes, the city of brotherly love. So phileo, Philadelphia, it means friendship or brotherly. It's a, a friendship or a familial type of love. Then there's another one, and it is eros. And eros, it refers to sexual love. It's where we get the word erotic. Okay, so we have phileo, we have eros, and those are different words that they would use in the Greek language to identify with this one word in English that we have, which is love. And then there was a third word, and it was agape. And agape is rarely used in, like, Greek society. If you were, not that I've, like, studied all of the Greek manuscripts and stuff, but in one of the commentaries I was reading, it was talking about how... um, the word agape was used very rarely in Greek society, mainly because there was no way to insert it. Like, people didn't fully comprehend it or express it, and so it wasn't used very often. But the word agape is used 320 times in the Bible, and it means love that is originated from God. It is self-sacrificing love, even to the point of death. That's agape love. And it's used 320 times. And so it's very interesting because this passage here, it's talking about how believers should love and non-believers can't love, right? And every time that the word love is used in this this passage, it doesn't say phileo, it doesn't say friendly or brotherly, it doesn't say eros, like a sexual love, it says agape love. It says self-sacrificing love. 
So if we read this passage again, it changes the meaning. Beloved, let us self-sacrificially love one another, for self-sacrificial love is from God. And whoever self-sacrificially loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not self-sacrificially love does not know God, because God is self-sacrificial love. In this, the self-sacrificial love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is self-sacrificial love. Not that we have self-sacrificially loved God, because we didn't, but that he self-sacrificially loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so self-sacrificially loved us, we also ought to self-sacrificially love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we self-sacrificially love one another, God abides in us, and his self-sacrificial love is perfected in us. It changes the meaning a lot. So if we are not a Christ follower, we haven't experienced God's agape love, his self-sacrificial love. And you can't give away what you don't have. And so if you are not a Christ follower, you can't, you can give away phileo love, you can give away that friendship, that brotherly, that familial love, you can give away that eros love, that sexual love, but you cannot give away agape love because you yourself have never experienced it. So we can have people who are not Christ followers who are loving but they cannot give out God's love because they don't have it. And then that brings us to the next question of why does the book of John focus so much on love? First John, focus on love. And it's because if we are Christ followers, we have experienced his agape love. We have seen it, we have tasted it. And then what I love in verse 12 If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So when we love, we explain God's love to the world because we have the power to agape to the rest of the world. And so John is saying over and over and over again, love, love, and love, because that's how this column is going to see Jesus. They see it when we do this, when we love, when we love, when we love. If not, they miss out on that. So we're commanded to love one another over and over and over again so that the rest of the world can see God's love. And that leads us to section three. And section three shifts from our command to love God to the way that God loves us. It's verses 16 through 18. And it says... So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and God, I'm sorry, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
we love because he first loved us. So verse 16 says, God is love, agape love, not not friendly love, like, okay, you know, like, oh, we're friends, but maybe we'll drift apart in the future, or eros, like it's sexual and it feels great, but then, it, you know, it may or may not last. Agape love, self-sacrificing, deep, indescribable, like gut-wrenching love. God is love. If we were to do... Um, kind of what Monique suggested last week, uh, instead of replacing our names in 1 Corinthians 13, but we were to put God in that, we would find his love. God is patient. His love is kind. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He keeps no record of our wrongs. He hopes for us. He believes for us. He perseveres for us. He never fails us. That is the love that God has for us. That's who he is. And so this brings up a question for me because sometimes I don't feel like that lines up um, when God doesn't give me the good thing that I want. You know, I'm not asking for a bad thing. I'm asking for a good thing, God. Um, and he doesn't give it to me, but I wanted it. Or what about when he like, allows something painful into our lives? doesn't seem like God is love in that moment, right? But love is the very core of God's being, and it is not in conflict with any of his other attributes. So this is kind of a flawed analogy, but I just want you to imagine like the sun, okay? And if we've got this big ball of sun, all right, and in the center, the sun right here, it is God's love, and it is burning. It is the core of who God is, right? Sun the core, love. And out of that love, he is radiating his other attributes. So out of his love, we have his justice. Out of his love, we have his mercy. Out of his love, we have his goodness. We have his all-powerfulness. We have every attribute of God radiating from love. It is the core of who he is. He is lovingly wise, lovingly faithful, He's lovingly good, lovingly merciful. He's also lovingly sovereign, in charge of everything. He's lovingly holy, requiring purity. He's lovingly just, so he's morally right and he's fair. He's lovingly all-knowing, and he's lovingly powerful. All of that stems from the love of God. And he sees the full picture of our lives, and he knows the best plan for our lives. And sometimes he's going to allow pain to happen because he knows that pain will promote promote and produce the most growth in us. And sometimes he's going to keep us from things like a toddler from a hot stove because he knows how much pain that thing we so desperately want is going to hurt us. And so we don't always understand why something happens there. But even when God doesn't seem loving, we can trust that at the core of every move that he makes, every single thing that he does, it is love. And it's not just love, it is that self-sacrificial love. I'm laying down my life for you, love. And that love abides in us so that we can then approach God with confidence. And verse 18 says, 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And the word fear, it's phobos, or where we get the word phobia. And it means dread, or terror, or worry. I don't feel like I have like a lot of dread, but I have a lot of worry. I think that fits me pretty well. Um, But there is no fear in love. I think it's interesting that John writes that line right there to a, a body of believers. This book was written to Christ followers. And so he says there's no fear in love. And I'm like, huh, okay. But I think he's smart in that because he, re- he recognizes that even though we're believers, even though we have experienced and tasted the agape love of God, we're still prone to forget. We still have questions. Sometimes we still doubt But there's no fear in agape because God sees his son abiding in us. And so the verse continues. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love. So complete, mature, lacking in nothing love. God's love, only God's love, casts out fear. And I love the way that it says it in the um, the NLT. Instead of saying cast out fear, it says it drives out fear. And it's present tense, okay? And I get this image of God like taking like, um, I don't know, like a dump truck or something and just like pushing it out, okay? He's like getting rid of it. He is driving out fear actively, present tense. So right now, Christ followers, God is currently in your life taking out those little pieces of fear, piece by piece. That means he is actively making us brave, making us more mature, helping us to trust him more, to believe his agape, and then to give his agape out. So it continues. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we are not finished Uh, This side of eternity, like, we're not going to get to the end goal. We're on this road to sanctification, but our glorification where we become like him, that doesn't happen until we see Jesus. On this side, we are working towards it, and we're going to grow in him. We are going to look more like him, but we aren't there yet. And so I take a little bit of freedom in this because it's okay that there's still some fear in my life. Fear that maybe... um, a failure, maybe that like God loves me, but maybe not enough for this, insert whatever. Um, Whatever the fear is, we get to bring it to Jesus and he can slowly push it out of our lives, drive it away. And 1 John 3, 2 reassures us, says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we have this hope that one day every fear, every thought that doesn't reflect God's love, his self-sacrificing love will be gone and we will be like him and we will fully trust him with no shadow of a doubt. But for now, we continue to grow in love as God continues to cast out our fears piece by piece. Um, And so my question is, um, where are you in this? Maybe you're like in section one and you're that non-Christ follower and all of this like agape love is just starting to click for you. Maybe you're seeing how um, 
maybe Christ followers have forgotten to love and they've misrepresented it and now you're seeing, oh, this is what it's supposed to be and I'm getting a taste of God's agape, self-sacrificing love for me. Or maybe you're a Christ follower who struggles with the idea of like, well, God saved me, but he doesn't love me enough for this or God's not going to do this or I still have to do this. Maybe there's a fear there that you need to address with him. Maybe you need to take action and really take these repeated commands to love to heart and say, God, I want to love with your self-sacrificing love. So it's got, there's three categories, and you might fit neatly into one, or maybe you, um, maybe you fit into a couple. What I want to do right now is take the time to talk to God about them. If you're at that edge and you're like, I... I want to believe in God, but I'm just not there yet. Talk to him. Ask him. Talk to him about it. He wants to answer that prayer. He wants to make himself real to you. If there's a fear, there's something that you're struggling with right now, he wants to hear it. So Hope's going to play a song over us. You can meditate on the words, but close your eyes and just pray. Talk to God about where you are in this. And at the end, we're going to stand and we are going to declare the bravery that God gives us as he continually casts out our fear in exchange for his perfect love. So I'm going to start us off by praying and then just keep going. So God, we ask you to come and meet us where we're at. You are so gracious. So show us what you have. And God, help us to step across that line no matter what it is to trust you. Let us experience your love today. In your name, Jesus. You can keep praying.